The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Click. Might be best. Look, I'm showing off and my my Stephen Colbert mic. Oh, hey! It is Tuesday, August thirty first, two thousand twenty one, five o two p.m. It is part two of our five hundredth episode, uh, which some people would call a five hundred and first episode. Except we don't. We call it uh, part two of the five hundredth episode. I promised you a, uh, a bit of uh, profanity gram- grammar from John McWhorter's new book for each episode. So here's today's. Uh, the word shit and ass as a reflexive pronoun. So um, when you say, uh, uh, I've got to get my shit together, you don't literally mean I'm gathering all the feces and taking it with me, you mean I'm getting myself together. And when you say, I fired his ass, you don't actually mean that you kept the rest of him. Uh, And according to John McWhorter, these are many, two of many examples, and I think they're fascinating, and you can kind of see them all over the place, of the way profanity morphs into reference to self. I just want to. I just want to say something really quickly, which is that you have decided to make this monologue all on your own for all five days of our hey, 500 episodes. So I see you've, you've classed up the show since I was here last. <laughs> it is. We are really not allowed to have fun anymore with the Delta variant and all that. And um, but we are allowed to have Preet Bharara back for his third time on the show. And Preet, I just want to remind you that the last time you were on the show was Election Day 2020. That is literally the day. And the reason you came on was that you texted me. um, I don't know what I'm going to do this afternoon. I'm I'm stressed out. And I said, come have a beer with us. And you You were like, don't have fun. In lieu of fun, you said. Yeah. So so you came on the show and... There were no election returns to process, and we just processed how uh, uh, anxious we were. Yeah. So my question is, because um, I haven't followed the news so much, is that is that election been settled? Do we know who won that thing? Yeah, Donald Trump. I think Trump we should won. put it to a vote. In the Biden poll. stole it. <laughs> I heard. You know, imagine imagine on that day, someone would tell you that, you know, many many months from now, I would come back on the show, and it would be a news story that Paul Ryan said to a reporter, I think today, oh, no. Joe Biden won the election. And that's that counts as news. So who Is that something that? that happened? Can someone tell me what happened with Matt Gates yesterday, if it's appropriate for television audiences? <laughs> I just like, sorry, I just saw him trending. And now I'm thinking about all the news that I missed. I, I have just... no idea what happened to Matt Gates. Does okay. anybody? There's like, I don't know, there was something happening yesterday. People in the audience were talking about it and chatting, and I thought that there was some type of story. But anyways, I just like, I thought that I missed it. I went to, I don't want to Google his name because I don't know what will come up. So it's just like, you don't know what products you'll be offered? Yeah, oh dear. Exactly. And services? Um, yeah. Different different Pfizer products. Yeah, different. Uh, yeah exactly. So- Pre, what have you been doing yourself for the last year? You 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 sold your company. I sold my I sold the company cafe to Vox Media. Um, they're very nice people at Vox Media. They're wonderful. We don't call them overlords ever. <laughs> Did I say that? No, that's great. It's been great. <laughs> we launched new we launched new stuff. We have a great history podcast with uh, these wonderful, brilliant historians. Um that you should watch and listen to. I don't know if I'm supposed to do plugs or not allowed to do plugs. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now and then, available for free wherever you get your podcasts. And they take, uh, you know, a lot of stuff from current from the current moment and they talk about and analyze it through the lens of history. 
So so listen listen to that. Otherwise, I've been just yapping, making my living, you know, flapping my gums like some subset of folks on this call. Yeah. More subset meaning every, meaning every 500 three of episodes four. worth. <laughs> like, yeah. I, you know, I, it sounds I, have, so... I have small gifts like this, like my little Stephen Colbert that I'm showing off. My Very Stephen cool. Colbert swag. By the way, by the way, I, I don't know, a marketing thing, and I, I obviously you're very successful, um, but like we like to call it a show rather than a call. Oh um, yes, no, that's yeah. good. That's good. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I was gonna call it a Zoom, a, I, but it's not a Zoom. Um, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> sorry. We we started. Um, you know, oh, a, a weekday <laughs> conference Thanks call. for inviting me on this call. <laughs> it's a great Per my call. last email, was everyone up to date on what we were going to discuss today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so, so um, I guess let's start with um, uh, uh, the fact that uh, the news is so bad that uh, I had to scroll all the way down to the bottom of the New York Times front page to find out what the COVID numbers were. That COVID has kind of been relegated to like third page bad news. Um, uh, how are you feeling these days? This is directed to me? Yeah, you're the guest. Oh. You're, most oh. of the questions will be directed to you. I'm kind of outnumbered. I thought, I thought it was a general question to the group on this call. Like, I, you know, it's hard. To... No, we just are all staring no. at you intently. <laughs> no, we're just, no, it's. It, I'm feeling good. Just... I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm trying to figure out uh, when I'm supposed to get my booster. Um, yeah. I are, feel. Are you, are you, you're fully vaccinated? You, you believe in vaccines? I believe in, in vaccines. Believing in the election. In addition to that, um, I, I believe in science, um, and I think you know my kids all start school tomorrow, two in college and one in high school, and I'm pleased that they're all going to be going to class. And one of the reasons that that's possible is because there are more science believers than not. Um, I find it interesting that I think Mississippi, I think as re as recently as today is now in second place in number of deaths due to COVID on a per capita basis, overtaking New Jersey, if I have that correct. And it, it makes me very sad to think that people are taking certain kinds of treatments that I will not make fun of at this moment, but I understand why sometimes people do, even though there are dire consequences of believing more in, in horse dewormer than in a fully approved vaccine. So I, I feel mixed about things. Some things are going are going well, like my kid's school. New York is doing, I think, fairly well. Um, on a more you know parochial level, personal to me, I, you know, I thought we were all going to be going back and doing events. There are conferences that have been delayed for a year and a half, and I have events that have been delayed for a year and a half. Some of them are getting canceled now in the fall, and some of them are proceeding. But it would be nice if more folks got vaccinated so we could all go about our business. And and this idea that it's an individual choice. And it doesn't affect the collective. I find to be silly. I I think you are really undervaluing the uh, uh, desire of the human being to be free of horse worms. <laughs> um, I have I have two things. One, I do not understand at all. Um, I actually think that maybe we misbranded the vaccine by calling it a vaccine. If we had called it the flu shot or the COVID shot, I think that like more people might have gotten it and they wouldn't have had like this type of like expectation level that once they got it, it was the only one they needed for the rest of their lives as they do with like rubella and measles and smallpox. And so like I'm getting, I'm hearing a lot of people, even smart people that had two shots griping about having to get a booster shot and i think that that is just insane like who cares like go get another shot it's not that big a deal you get a flu shot every year because variation happens and so that i think yeah. we missed the opportunity i think we should have branded it hydroxychloroquine then everybody <laughs> would want to take it yeah right. yeah I, I, or maybe I also, called it horse dewormer I, I also think uh 
Kate is right in the sense that the term vaccine bizarrely has been, you know, stigmatized by a certain segment of the population who would then be, you know, uh, you know, would extend that skepticism to something called the blank vaccine, but the shot, like a shot's a shot. Yeah. So I think that, that, that probably, that, that was really interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's just like, it's just been something that I mean, the other thing is guess what I have in my closet. I have goat lung dewormer in my closet. Really? You have specific, specific to the organ? No, I had, yes. I had it before all of this happened. And then there you, you are, per, you are prepared. Is it traditionally <laughs> stored in closets or is that just your, no, that's just like, that's just I mean, like I, color. That's I keep, just color I keep mine in the fridge myself. You could also call that a skeleton, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't usually, I didn't used to mention it in polite company, but now it's really like, it's kind of like a calling card. Does that so. kind of thing expire or does it, does, is it like a Twinkie and it lasts like forever? I, I was, the dog was sick and the vet told us to get it. And they thought she had some lungworm thing like a couple of years ago. And so we ordered it and it was cheaper than like the thing. But like, we never got rid of it. Cause like, what if she gets it again? And yeah, and what if yeah. you need it to, what if you need it as a right. miracle cure for a perfectly treatable condition? But can I say something contrarian for can I say something contrarian for a moment that not everyone may like? So the first time I heard about the horse dewormer, of course, I went to the most sacred uh, platform for news, the Twitter. And when you first go on Twitter and they start talking about this, and I get it's insane, and I'm stipulating it's insane for people to trust that over a vaccine, but you get the sense that there are these crazy people who are taking something that has never been taken by a human being ever in their lives not to say that that's sufficient, but then you dig a little further and there is some, I'm not saying it's scientifically prescribed or should be prescribed, but you know there are people who get a little bit carried away and don't appreciate that there are some folks who uh, you know, understand that there are humans who take it to, to deal with a particular medical issue and there are real doctors who prescribe it for real things. Um, and the folks who don't want to take the vaccine latch on to that. So, you know, sometimes it's the case that the things we make fun of deserve to be made fun of if the, if the situation wasn't so tragic. But it's not quite as in, it's not it's not 100 on a, on a zero to 100. It's like an 85 or a 90. And then people are grasping so much at straws. You, you had the case. I think there was a case in the last few days where somebody successfully sued uh, and got a judge to require the hospital to administer the horse dewormer because it was prescribed by an actual licensed doctor. Now, I'm not a doctor. I have a doctor in my family and I think it's all insanity, you know, but but sometimes, you know, the mere mockery of these things is not gonna get through to people who have different, you know, sources of information and they hear about a case like that and they hear about someone who took it for something else. Am I making any sense? Yes, yeah, you're, yeah. absolutely. Particularly with hydrochloroquine because there are a lot of different uses for that that are off label from its typical prescription. Um, the ivermectin might be a little bit different, but yes. Can I, can, I, can I just push back a little bit on this? Because I feel like, you know, just on the substance about ivermectin, sure, we can all, you know, you can find a case um, to be made, but it sounds like the cl their claim that making is internally inconsistent. Because on the one hand, they say, it's an experimental, unproven vaccine, and then an actual doctor prescribed ivermectin. It, it just it just doesn't sound Hundreds like. Hundreds of horses would disagree with you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but but so it just sounds to me like it, it feels almost like the and this is what I think um, um, kind of prompts the mockery is you feel like there's a such a desire to own the libs um, that you're willing to do something as crazy as take horse dewormer. That, that, that's, so anyway. I... Well, because, well, the other scientific aspect of the horse dewormer, I think has been proven not to have microchips. So, you know, you can, you can understand 
you know, why one might have that preference. Let me just <laughs> check my phone really quickly because I don't <laughs> want anyone to track me. <laughs> oh my God. Look, but like, another another positive thing, and it's sad and tragic, and I don't know if this has, I, mean, I think there's a combination of things happening that's causing the vaccination rate to go up, right? One, tragic. Some people say Darwinian. I'm not one of those people. Where you have conservative talk show host after, you know, anti-vaxxer person who literally on Twitter, like one of them, their last tweet was about the fascism of the vaccine, dead of COVID, right? And so it remains true based on my conversation with lots of people that we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the people who believe in the vaccines talk about it, like all of us here on this call. And then we talk about the, the, the vehemently opposed to the vaccinations. There's actually like a sizable percentage of people who are vax hesitant. We can make fun of them or we cannot make fun of them or we could try to figure out ways to persuade them. And and many of those people are not actually fully insane and they have questions and they don't have primary care doctors. And I believe that some people in that group, it's not the middle group because the good news is the overwhelming majority of Americans have said that they, they are prepared to take the vaccine or have taken the vaccine. It's not that big a band, but it's not just the, the vax people and the non-vax people. There's people who can be persuaded. And I think some of them I, I, I are seeing these stories of people who, you know, badmouth the vaccine and they're now dead and in the morgue. And so if those lessons can be taught, then I think we're on a slower path, you know, on a, on a, on a path to more vaccinations. Do you think that, so I, I, I keep going back and forth in my own mind about the proper role of mockery in this, that on the one hand, look, I agree with you. There are a lot of people who are not vaxxed for reasons ranging from just indolence you know haven't gotten around to it yet to a certain nervousness about what they perceive to be unnecessary medicine um uh they feel about it roughly the way i feel about plastic surgery which is you know hey if it's not necessary i probably don't want to do it um, and their sense of necessary is very different from mine. Uh, to people who are telling themselves fabulous stories to avoid the moral and health necessities of vaccination. And it seems to me two of those three groups are amenable to persuasion. One of them is not. And, uh, and is also taking a view that is actually ridiculous. And um, I do think part of me says, hey, mocking people is not the right answer. But part of me says, hey, those of us, the 70% of us who agree about this thing that happens to be right, um, we get to band together too. And part of the you know, creation of a certain esprit de corps among those of us who, you know, actually want to not kill each other uh, involves a certain mockery of those who uh, who don't share the premise. And, I, and so I'm, I'm curious what you think the right role of, uh, shall we say, tasteful teasing. Uh, yeah, so to me, to me uh, I understand your question. It depends on what the purpose is, and it depends on who the audience is, and it depends on who you're talking with, right? So if if you were all in my home and we were having a drink, then I think it's anything goes. Um, if, on the other hand, at the other end of the, of the extreme, because we're like-minded folks and we're all vaccinated and we get to be together because we're vaccinated fully, uh, at the other end of the extreme, let's suppose you have been asked to volunteer to go talk, you know, at a, at a meeting of a community that calls out all the folks who have questions about the vaccine and, and are opposed to taking or at least hesitant, I don't think you would use mockery to try to persuade them, right? You wouldn't use a comedian's touch. And I've had, you know, I've seen examples of doctors and other folks, you know, I've spent some time talking to them about the ways to persuade people who are hesitant. And maybe there's some people who are not persuadable, but you're, you're directing your words to the people who are persuadable. You'd use a very different approach. And I think it would be you'd be kinder and more understanding, even if you don't fully, you know, 
credit their their, their logical thinking uh, and their reasoning skills. And then in between, I think uh, for purposes of this show, I finally got it right. Uh, I don't know how many people are are tuning in who are fully anti-vax, and so it's a, it's a little bit more, you know, of a community of like-minded folks. But you know, if if you're a private person and you have no public platform, then I think you're free to do whatever you want. You know, folks who have a public platform, and since some of the listeners or viewers or 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 Twitter followers might be in the camp that's persuadable. My view is I try to be a little bit gentler about it because I want more people to get vaccinated. So just uh, to to flesh that out, um, I have never actually confronted somebody who professed to be anti-vax. I had a debate with a woman named Liz Wheeler on a podcast who was a was opposed to vaccine mandates of any kind and insisted that it was a legitimate choice not to be vaccinated. But she wouldn't say, I don't believe in the vaccine. I won't, I wouldn't get it. Um, So if you were confronted by such a person, what would you say to them other than your, like, what's the respectful way to say, you're really full of shit? Well, so I I, I had some discussions about Adam Grant, Who's a brilliant organizational psychologist who's been on my podcast a couple of times. Talk, we actually did an exercise where he had me pretend to be someone who's anti-vax um, and make my arguments because I wanted to see how he would talk to someone like that. And you know, if you're if you're in good faith, running into somebody who's that one. By the way, you know, I, I know folks who are that way. My son has friends whose parents have not gotten the vaccine. Not a lot, but a, but a couple. Uh, and we live in Westchester County. Um, you know, we don't live in, in a red state. And the advice from Adam is, and, and from the doctors I've seen who've had these kinds of conversations to convert people to getting a vaccination has been to ask questions and find out what their particular concerns are. And so, for example, uh, when confronted with somebody who says, look, you know, I'm not 100% against it. It's not that I'll never get one, but this is obviously not um, the case any longer. But it's just emergency use authorization. It's only been around for a little while. We don't know what the long-term effects are going to be, which is not a crazy point. Um, I think we do the math better than that, but it's not a crazy point if it's made in good faith. And Adam says, you know, the thing that I would say to that person is, well, you know, that's interesting, but there have been a lot of scientific studies. We've studied for a particular amount of time compared to how the studies have been done with respect to other vaccinations that have been deemed safe over time, explain that the big problems that we've seen with vaccinations over the course of medical history, as I understand it, any severe problem surfaces within the first few weeks to the first two months. That it is not the case, based on scientific study and our history and our track record, that some crazy medical problem arises from a vaccine 18 months in. And then the second or third thing you would say to that person is, I get your point that you're concerned about the long-term effects of the nation, but are you aware of the potential long-term effects of COVID? It's not just the flu. And there are lots of doctors who have done a lot of different studies to show that some subset of people who get COVID, it's not like they get the flu recover, but they have long-term, you know, negative side effects that, you know, as a mathematical matter and a statistical matter, outweigh the long-term likely effects of the vaccination. And that's a pretty mature, um, you know, intelligent discussion that doesn't take, uh, you know, your own view for granted and respects the point of view of the other side. And you know, does it persuade the person that day? Maybe not, but maybe in combination with other kinds of persuasive tactics, it does. That's the advice from a particular person. And now I've, I've ended the show somehow. No, wait, I'm waiting for Ben to say something. I thought he was going to say something. No, I was waiting for you. You have a diagram oh, to draw. Oh, I do. <laughs> hold on. I have to, you guys disappeared and I can't find you. So hold on one second. I don't, oh my God. Look, there, there is a group of people who, who are just own the libs. And, and they're a peculiar sort because having taken the... And I read about this, I think, even with respect to somebody who had a family member who died from COVID, that they, they, they are so wrapped up in the identity of being for freedom, their version of freedom, and anti-vaccination, that there is no face-saving way for the person without particular psychology to then abandon 
their position. It's kind of like the sort of you know always Trumper, in the face of in the face of of lots and lots of evidence that Trump was incompetent and didn't care about you. You made the commitment to that cause, even in the face of death. Some people are never going to be converted. So, well, look, that's what God wanted, and yeah. that's what happens. And I think those people are not savable with argument. So, Preet, <clears throat> I have um, I have something for you, which is while you were talking, I sketched out a Venn diagram. And Uh-oh. people that are familiar with the show know that I love Venn diagrams. Can you make me big, Ben? I've been saying that for years. Can you make me big, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was about to mention something before the, uh, the, he made you big and then there. Okay. So I think that basically you can put anti-vaxxers in four can like Venn diagram concentric circles and there's one. Oh good. The marker's working. I'm so happy about that. Um, let's try another one. Okay. By the way, can you guys see the, that? This is the best TED Talk ever. It's a yeah. little faint, but we can see it. Can you? Okay. Yes. So yes. this. This is like liberty-based reasons not to vax. Okay. Okay. And then like around, then like concentric with that, you have you have um, genuine skepticism. You know, you know how based often means not just like based on, but like cool in an ironic way. Am I doing it? No, no, but that's what it looks like. You're like, looks like you're saying liberty is based. Oh, right. Yes. No, liberty based reasons not to vaccinate. And then I have okay, and then we have conspiracy theory people who like believe conspiracy theories. I feel like these two overlap. The people who genuinely don't believe science, and then the people who believe conspiracies. Um, conspiracy theory, and then you have over here, you have the fun like the fundamentalists, like the religious. I'm spelling everything wrong. But then I think this is the most important part of the Venn diagram is that like all of it is people who are looking to score political points on the right. <laughs> Everything I don't, I don't know that that's circle. right. Really? I, yeah, I, I think like there I, I think person on the right would like agree with any one of these points just to score political points. Right, but Ben you're but it's, not, but it's not the case that that it's not maybe I'm not understanding Ben diagrams. I don't think it's the case <laughs> that 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 everyone in the circle um, of skeptics is also conservative trying to score a political point. And we have a neighbor right. who super educated and oh, you know, doesn't, right. does, doesn't no, no. meet like the demographic. And, and this person said to my, my wife had a conversation with this person. And this person said kind of to, to my uh, wife's surprise, uh, you know, we're not, I'm not getting the vaccine. I, I'm letting my kids get it because it's required for them to go to school. But I think I'm a healthy person. And I think we take too many vaccines. We, we, we over-vaccinate in this country. And he's not a crazy person in the way. I'm not sure what category he fits in other than skeptic. And I, I don't even think he's necessarily, necessarily a conservative or a Republican. He just has a personal view that, you know, I'm healthy. I'm going to be careful. Um, he wears a mask. No, no, you're, misunder- think, you're misunderstanding. And I did kind okay. of like get sloppy with the Venn diagram kind of meaning there. But what I was trying to basically say was, those are the four ways that I conceptualize basically the anti-vaxxers. And then like what basically is happening politically is the entire right is pandering to all of those and fitting inside all of those. So like, I think people have their individual reasons for choosing not to vaccinate. I think they kind of roughly fit in those buckets. And then I think, that politicians are like on the right or conservatives are willing to take on any single one of those in order to score points and in order to like strengthen their base. And so that's kind of like, that's, that's what I meant. And you're right, it didn't particularly, that part didn't match onto the Venn diagram, but like that was my bigger point. Can, can I just say, say one thing? I, I agree, of course, with what Preet said. I mean, that is obviously it, you know, in the public sphere of a certain sort, we should be trying to persuade because it's not only the right thing for humanity, but it's in our self-interest and 
That, oh, that's of course right. I would just also just to say that there's another side to it, and I wrestle with this all the time, which is that it, when, when, we're set, when we're told we're not allowed to mock that which is mockable, it feels like almost like blame, it, I, and I know it is not meant in this case, but it feels sometimes like almost like blaming the victim. Like you can't even, like you can't even make fun of something that's risable when you're suffering because of the, the kind of silly behavior. And so sometimes like to mock is a way of relieving pressure. Um, uh, and so, you know, that, that I'm, has- I'm not anti-mockery. I am very, I'm very generally speaking, politically uh, pro-mockery. Okay, um, I, I, so, so, in, so I, I think that also can apply to horse dewormer people. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, 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 not all. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in some, certain contexts. Richard Wattenbarger. Hello. The floor is yours. Oh, well, okay. Well, I, I thought that I, you know, I thought that I'd actually continue uh, discussing weight, uh, discussing, you know, I actually moved to something frivolous like, um, like, you know, what a prosecutor does. But, uh, but instead, I, there was something much more weighty here. And, and it's this, you know, after your triumphant effort, uh, your endeavor to turn Tom Nichols into a fan of Indian <laughs> cuisine, uh, I think it's time to turn the tables and ask, are there any cuisines that you have yet to warm up to? And if so, or even not, if you could have your own Preet Bharara to introduce you to a cuisine, who would it be? Wow, so I have learned um, I think generally, I, I, I think I'm, I'm smart enough not to have ever, nor would I ever, malign entire cuisine. Like one of the reasons that Tom Nichols, for folks on the story, he said something quite stupid, and by his own admission, quite stupid on Twitter, like a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, and it was not to say I don't like Indian food, or I don't like a particular dish, or I don't like curry. And because he's, you know, trying to be uh, you know, mockery can get you in trouble, too, if you don't do it properly. That's another aspect of this conversation, I guess. He said, you know, um, it was something like, you know, uh, we all pretend to like Indian food, even though it's terrible, <laughs> which, which was not even allowing for the fact that it's something subjective. And, and, and forgetting the fact there's 1.3 billion people in the country of my birth. And he was basically saying they're all just liars and they eat this shit. <laughs> which I'm told I can say, uh, and they're pretending in, in some kind of like, as some kind of act. And that offended a lot of people. Um, there are there are cuisines in which there are more dishes that I like than there are in some other cuisines. I'm not going to name any of them because uh, I like to remain uncanceled. But, you know, when I took, so, so Tom Nichols, as a good sport, allowed me to take him out to dinner to a very nice Indian restaurant in New York. And, you know, I had a strategic plan worked on with the chef and the owner of the restaurant to try to give I me. Mean, there are a few cuisines that are as diverse as as, in, as Indian food, given how big the freaking country is hmm. and how many different cultures there are. And if you can't find something within a cuisine as broad as Indian, then there's something wrong. And, and he accepted that. And he is now a huge fan of lamb biryani. Um, if there's somebody I would pick to introduce me to, I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, I was actually on a show uh, uh, that that airs on Hulu, uh, that's hosted by Padma Lakshmi, who happens to be uh, of Indian descent as well. So I suppose if there's any cuisine that I have not had, I would want her to be my guide because she's excellent at that. She is really good. I will just say, Preet is is being delicate and not singling out a cuisine as uh, <laughs> I will single one out. Uh, people say there is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There is not. There is a joint regional conspiracy to kill me by feeding me things that I'm allergic to. Uh. Uh, I reject the food of the Levant in its entirety. Uh, even when people tell you there are no sesame seeds on it, there are they pour on tahini like it's water, uh, and it's all an effort to send me to the hospital. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, definitely, it's definitely the Mossad. Is, uh... In collaboration <laughs> with the PA and the Syrian government and the right. Lebanese government, right. they're all in it together. 
and it's targeting me. Shailesh, uh, the floor is yours. Hello. Hey, Preet. Uh, honored Hi. to speak to you. And hello, Indoor Fund. So, Preet, I discovered Indoor Fund when you first joined back in April 2020. Uh, before that, I mostly knew Ben for uh, baby cannon videos. Uh, uh, so my question is, what are your thoughts on in lieu of fun format? Uh, how would you compare it with your experience of uh, creating Stay Tuned with Preet? And do you think the audience participation can make Stay Tuned even better? Because whenever I'm listening to you, I always have follow-up <clears throat> questions and there is no way I have to send them. I, I just I missed the first part. Are you saying the format of my podcast versus the format of this show? Yeah. So this uh, yesterday there was an interesting conversation. Ben was making some comments about how this has been sort of a uh, participation of a lot of engaged, thoughtful people in a live conversation, but it doesn't scale. And on the other hand, live live stay stay tuned with breathe has been you know immensely well distributed. And but I never get a chance to ask you follow up questions when you say something. So I think it's a great question. And look, there are different things that are for different times. In fact, you know, I have two podcasts I do every week. One that that gets a very, very wide listenership, you know, hundreds of thousands, stay tuned with Preet. And people can get on whatever platform. They don't have to tune in at a particular time. Uh, they can listen to it. There's no video which, you know, spares everyone from having to look at me, spares me from having to be well-groomed at particular hours of the day. Uh, and people can listen on their commute or while they're gardening or while they're going for a walk. And, and I like that because you can get a lot of folks. We try to mitigate the issue of not having engagement a little bit. You know, at the beginning of Stay Tuned, uh, the podcast every week, I answer for 10 or 15 minutes questions that people send. It's not quite the same as having a back and forth and having a follow-up question answered. Uh, and then separately, and this is behind a paywall because, you know, I got three kids to send to college. Uh, I have the Insider Podcast, which I do at the moment with Joyce Vance, and we just have a 45-minute to 60-minute discussion between ourselves, also sometimes answering listener questions about legal events that have occurred. I have also done, haven't done in a while, something like this. Uh, we'll do a Zoom where we have, you know, a few hundred people who participate. It doesn't scale as well. We'll showcase some of the other hosts on some of the podcasts we have at CAFE, and we do a back and forth and do answer questions. Uh, it's just it's it's hard to get as many people involved in the conversation, but I agree it's it's fun to do, so I should do it more. The Reverend Doctor Hillary Livingston, the floor is yours. How are you? Happy five hundredth episode week, and welcome, Preet. It's great to talk to you. Um, Preet, I want to go back to your food summit with Tom Nichols, and you guys also raised a lot of um, money for charity from that. Uh, it was very uplifting. And I wonder if that's kind of a template um, that we can use to kind of foster greater understanding, greater dialogue, greater respect in our hyper-polarized um, society. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> you know, um, not to sound corny, but you know, it, it was a, it was a huge learning experience for me, and I think if you've been following the story, you may have heard me say, you know, when we set up the GoFundMe, uh, in connection with this dinner I was having with <clears throat> I was having with Tom, and I thought, you know, why don't we do something for a good cause? And at the time, India was experiencing really, really tragic uh, uptick in in COVID spread and in deaths, and I, I said with my assistant who helped set up the GoFundMe, like I hope we don't embarrass ourselves, uh, you know. If we can make at least a couple of thousand dollars, you know, that'll be something. Um, and in order to, to sort of, you know, push that, I, I put in $10,000 of my own money. So I, I, I fed it first with, you know, a good chunk of change. I thought if we can get up to 12, that'll be great. And something about the open-mindedness of Tom, um, his ability to make fun of himself for, you know, really silly view. Um, I think my outreach to him, gentle ribbing of him, mockery figured in, by the way, substantially. Um, but good-natured mockery. The fact that over, you know, people were curious to see, there's some suspense. Is he going to like it? Is he not going to like it? People were worried that he was going to lie because now it was, you know, we were posting videos from the dinner. Tom made clear to everyone that he's not afraid of having a bad opinion. 
Uh, and he wasn't he wasn't gonna lie. Look, and he, he ended up not Tom, liking Curry. But Tom's not a liar. He's uh, he's not a liar. He's just not that guy. That's what gets him in trouble. Some he should keep some of his truthful views to himself. <laughs> but he's, he's not a liar. Uh, and there was something that just that really thrilled people about the idea of of two guys who had a difference of opinion about food and one person being open minded about it, and and discovering that he loves lamb biryani and some other things. Never came around to Curry. We had a discussion about what some of those reasons, like legit reasons, might be. <clears throat> I thought about doing another thing like that. I don't know. And by the way, just for folks who don't know, we raised one hundred and forty thousand uh, dollars. By cool. the time we finished dinner, we were at fifty thousand, fifty thousand dollars. And Tom Nichols tweeted out, "If you keep, if you guys keep donating, I'm going to keep eating." So we ate. We ate a lot of food. I don't think either of us ate anything the next day. Um, so yeah, I think it is. It's 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 a it's a it's a very rare. <clears throat> a feel-good story on a toxic platform that did something for a good cause. And so I'm looking for another opportunity to do something like that, yes. Although there was a guy at the Washington Post who had an equally <laughs> stupid view about Indian food recently. Oh, my God. Did you I, – I can't believe that you – like, it was like he just ripped off Tom and, like, yeah. but made it longer and more boring <clears throat> and, like, more offensive. And it was, like, even – My like, favorite reaction to people was – incorrect. Is he just – there are easier ways to, to have dinner with me. <laughs> by, by publishing I, just to, I just want to say I have always loved Indian food. Um, okay. Uh, but. No free meal for you. No, no, no. I, I, I'm giving up my free meal. The most shockingly fabulous meal I have ever had. The one that I walked in thinking cool dive bar kind of place. Um, uh and walked out thinking that is one of the truly great meals I have ever had was, I don't remember what it's called but it's in Singapore and That's it helpful. is uh, 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 Thanks for the tip Yeah, and no, no, no. Uh, They put a banana leaf in front of you, it's kind of like a dive it's, it's, it's a small little place, it's not fancy a pitcher of beer and a banana leaf, and they just pour curries on top of the banana leaf. And I was there with my son and a bunch of military officers because we were in it was the the Pacific Command Conference was in Singapore that year, and one of them knew about this place and uh, and got everybody to go. And we get about like twenty minutes in, and my son, who was then like twelve or thirteen, looks at me and says, "This is unbelievable." <laughs> um, and and we sort of realized that we were having like one of the great meals of our lives. So for phase two, we should take Tom Nichols to Singapore and take him to this curry place and see that if you've we never can... heard of that you don't remember that the is, name of. Oh, I could find out easily enough. I was there That's with the budget. I was I mean. there. Hey, if you can raise a hundred fifty grand for uh, uh, for charity, we can surely we can. Uh, uh, front a little bit of it uh, to 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 go to Singapore. Plan. I, I I do, but I I've um, this is all a very painful discussion for me because um, of um, my I, well, the worst interaction I had on Twitter is when I said that paella was overrated. Oh um, no! And that was um, so I I'm, I feel a bit. Kind of, um, still shell shocked from from that. Um, Should we go get some? I'll, I'll go get some with you. Well, yeah, but that it, and it'll be good. You just said it was you just said it was overrated. You didn't say it was yeah. terrible. Yeah. You didn't say the no, cuisine. Right. No, that's right. But apparently, I'm not allowed in Valencia. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> or at least Valencia Twitter hates me. Really well, we're going to me. Hong Kong anyway. Look, but, but, here's the but, I'll, I'll say something. My mother and father may be on, but they know this. You know, there there are Indian dishes that I can't stand. And people think I have three heads. So my, my mother's a great cook of Indian food. And she makes, you know, food that's sublime. Um, and she apparently, one of her best dishes is, is something that I'm 52 and I've never eaten it. You know, even though she's, you know, earlier in my life, she tried putting it in front of me. And, and it's and it's a version of, of a prepared cooked eggplant. And I, I hate eggplant. I'm not going to say eggplant is overrated. I'm not going to say I hate eggplant-based cuisines. 
I, for whatever reason, don't like eggplant. It's very weird to me that that the, the, the texture of eggplant. And she makes, you know, a, a bang and barta, which which my own wife says is unbelievably delicious. It comes from the loving hands of my own mother. It's in the cuisine of the country of my birth, about which we've been talking, and I can't stand it. So those kinds of things happen, and it's okay. Christopher Argerus, the floor is yours. Okay, just, just to con- uh, this is not my question for Preet, but I want to ask Scott to continue the food theme. Uh, since we have a strong Bay Area contingent, is your T-shirt from the Bay Area Top Dog from the Oakland Berkeley? Okay. Cool. I, I just want to point out yes, on the subject exactly of this of, of the of the of Scott's shirt, Kate overwhelmingly won the poll today. Uh, I am the only one wearing a dog shirt except Scott, who fooled you all. Um, and Kate and Genevieve were the were the bad actors today. Uh, Christopher, your question. Okay, so so Preet, so um, c- carrying on the this the title of your recent book, uh, doing justice, uh, is, is 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 justice. I know that's not what, what you were talking about in your title, but uh, what what is doing justice in terms <laughs> of uh, c- confronting or dealing with the aftermath of the Trump administration, uh, January sixth. Uh, and the the administration and uh, is justice being done and can some sense of justice be done to all of the <clears throat> sort of Trump all that Trump has wrought so that's a big question <laughs> which took me 336 pages to kind of semi-answer in the book, and the reason I call it doing justice is justice is a process. Um, it's not an outcome. And I think the problem in a lot of discussions about what should happen, whether you're talking about the one six uh, insurrection, or you're talking about Trump's conduct, or you're talking about, for that matter, Hillary Clinton's conduct, you know, or, or anything that requires accountability, criminal or civil, or administrative or anything else, is that there are people of the point of view they read about it in the Times, they saw it on uh, on TV or their friend told them about it, and they have a view that that person should be locked up. And by the way, you know, lock him or lock her up chant is not exclusive to one side or the other. Maybe it's more, you know, prolific on one side with respect to one particular person. But there are lots and lots of people in this country who have a view uh, without having access to the grand jury information, without having access to the documents, that there should be a particular punishment for a particular person. And that's not how justice works. That's not how it's supposed to work. And, and in the main, you know, lots of people have different conceptions of justice. There's, there's, there's justice, uh, there's legal justice, and there's cosmic justice, and there's moral justice. And, and all those, depending on your definitions, are different things. And sometimes, by the way, legal justice, which is the profession that I have been in, is not satisfying. Um, and, and so generally speaking, you know, a something will be deemed an outcome will be deemed as just if the if the process the rules by which that process unfolds are considered to be fair and the people who are involved in it are fair-minded and both of those things are required so just quickly you know i don't know i don't have all the information with respect to one six and you know maybe it's the case as some people have started to grumble that there's not enough accountability and the higher-ups who are involved in convening the one six event should face some accountability from the criminal justice system. I, I have not seen all the testimony. I have not connected all the dots. I have not seen all the documents. I have a fair amount of trust in Merrick Garland and the team, you know, some of whom are close personal friends of mine, that they will do what is, uh, you know, right by the law and not just, you know, what people sort of want to have happen because they want to see comeuppance. And sometimes it's a failure. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book called Walking Away. Um, talks about cases that sometimes prosecutors can't make, even though justice would seem to require some kind of accountability. Maybe legal accountability is not possible in those circumstances. So I think we got to wait to see what happens with 1-6. But I, I think the people who are involved, you know, one of the two ingredients I said was important, are fair-minded people. Speaking of the book, Paula, a famed law student, has a question on the subject. Yes. Yeah, so... Can you hear me okay? I can. That, that's um, a very easy question. Um, 
big coincidence, I had part of your book for my 1L Crim Law class assigned today for reading. Um, and cool. <laughs> you don't need praise from me, but I actually thought, I mean, I think a lot of people write quite poorly that it was really well written and compelling the part of the book that I had to read. Um, and which, which, one, which part was it? Baby Clarina. Oh yeah. Okay. And I like, I swear I'm not like saying this just to be nice. I kind of thought, well, this is what makes pre pre. And what I mean by that is like, uh, like one of the best lawyers in the country. Like I don't read a lot of things that are that concise, precise and compelling at the same time. And I want to know if to you it's that versus memorizing a procedure that made you the lawyer that you were, or it wasn't, or I guess maybe more broadly. What Notice the past you... tense there. <laughs> I mean, I'm really resting on your laurel. I have not had my license suspended in any jurisdiction, yet. although that sometimes happens to former U.S. attorneys from the Southern District of New York. As no well as people who get called out on in lieu of fun. <laughs> Thank you to in, alert in lieu of fun viewer who pointed out that a lawyer that uh, uh, I attacked on the show was uh, recently removed from the bar. And so I, I, oh. I assume the causation the there, though there is no possible evidence thereof. Oh, yeah. Oh, there was that, oh, that woman. Was it the woman? Wait, which one? Wow. I'm just as confused as Katie. Um, uh, no, no, this is a total tangent, and I okay, don't sorry. mean to divert us from Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> but um, so, so I guess you should also know. Before, I'm I'm loving this line of inquiry. This is very this is very good. Thank you. Um, what do you think? If if not the skills that went into writing that book makes you the lawyer that you are. Let me change the tense or that you find desirable in the other lawyers that you worked with. So, so, so thank, thank you for the, for the praise. You know, one thing that's interesting, the, the chapter is Paula, right? The, the, the one thing, uh, you know, about that case and, and the book is very readable. It's not for lawyers. It's meant mostly for people who are not lawyers who understand, uh, you know, how you think about moral issues and how you make decisions given, you know, conflicting factors, right? And that case was about a, 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 an infant who was stolen from the Harlem hospital when she was, you know, 20 or 22 days old uh, back in the, in the late 80s. And, you know, 23 years later, 22 years later, um, that baby is an adult, <clears throat> figures out based on things that happened in her family and with NICMIC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, that she was not being raised by her actual mother and, and discovers that she was a famous kidnap case from Harlem Hospital uh, in New York City many years earlier. And and what the chapter turns on, the case turns on, this is getting to an answer to your question, is is what's the right punishment that prosecutors should seek for the kidnapper, right? And among the considerations is, yeah, the kidnapper committed a, a heinous crime and the biological parents of baby Carlina had not had the benefit of having any relationship with their daughter, probably thought she was dead was you know weren't sure you know eye for an eye logic prevailed in their hearts and minds and thought that we should seek a mandatory minimum sentence which was permissible under the statute uh meanwhile another victim of the of the crime was baby carlina herself who was now grown who still loved the person who had kidnapped her although she appreciated it was a crime and to re-traumatize her by having her be a witness in the trial you, you can imagine all the different conflicting things and so the chapter is about how we made the decision about whether uh, to require a plea or go to trial on the mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years, given the heinousness of the crime, or withdraw that count and leave it up to the judge. And so the reason I picked that story and the reason I wrote the book, I think is, is, a, is a version of an answer to your question about what makes it, forget about whether or not I'm a good lawyer, but what makes a good lawyer um, we spent a lot of time in law school and otherwise talking about statutes and teaching people how to read cases and having people brief them and understanding the rules of evidence and all that is very important. But I will tell you, there was never an extremely difficult decision that I made as U.S. attorney and probably also not as an assistant U.S. attorney, a line prosecutor, that I could find the clear answer in a book, right? You know that you have maybe the majority of you on your side if you're making an argument 
and the other side has the minority view, but the circumstances are different, and you figure out ways to distinguish your case from a precedent, um, that's not hard. Uh, sometimes it's an uphill battle and you need to write well. The hard stuff are examples like I just gave in the baby Carlina case. What's the right thing to do? What does judgment require? What does overall justice and fairness mean? Uh, and so what I try to do when I teach my law school class at NYU and in the book is try to present issues and questions that don't have clear answers in books. There's some irony in that, writing a book about questions that are not answerable in books. Uh, and I think the best lawyers are the ones who spend a lot of time <clears throat> you know, being thoughtful and rigorous about their judgment because the most difficult things are things that don't have precise answers. Um, you know, what's, what's the right moment to arrest someone when you have evidence of a crime, but not overwhelming evidence, but at the same time you have a concern that the fraud uh, is gonna be such that money will be dissipated and you can't get money back to a victim. Nobody in law school ever taught me that. And I think we need to spend more time. And I'll give you another example that I use all the time in, in my class. You know, nobody in law school ever taught me or spent one minute explaining to me how it is you get a reluctant victim of a violent crime or maybe undocumented to come testify about the crime. I mean, maybe that happened in some clinical courses, but but no formal law school class ever addressed the issue. And I found myself as an assistant U.S. attorney, a young lawyer, realizing, well, the drafting of the indictment is easy. I can understand the Hobbs Act robbery statute, but how do I convince this scared person who was held up at gunpoint in their home in Chinatown, how do I convince that person to come testify and trust me? So it's a long-winded answer um, to say that I think what makes people good at their jobs, not just as lawyers, but also as doctors, and I have some analogies to, to, to medical doctors in the book, is judgment, thoughtfulness, and rigor, not just sort of a rote understanding of rules and policies. All right, we're going to go to Dr. Doom for the last question of the day, except that I have been trying to bring on Zunyi uh, for a while, unable to get her on the screen. Uh, she asks, what do you make of the missing January 6th lawyer, John Pierce? What does DOJ have in their toolkit to compel accuracy on where he is? He's the attorney of record for 17 defendants. Do you know anything about this? I don't. Then uh, we will save it for another day. Dr. Doom, you get the last question today. Then which which question were you attracted to? Um, I I'm trying to think which one I was. There's one to help you and Preet raise more money. And oh then no, I was I was thinking of the uh, Newsom recall question. Yeah, um, Preet, can you can you opine on the uh, on the Newsom recall? It seems if you consider the Constitution to be kind of like an operating system, the con you know, with laws and other things to uh, distribute power, uh, that we have hackers of it and that the Constitution has been hacked in California by people who understand it well and then have done an attack which may have a disastrous consequence. And I, not being a lawyer, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. <laughs> so I'm not an expert in the recall. Um, I don't know that, so, so there, there are things that are, you know, legally stupid, legally wrong, politically stupid, um, as a policy matter, wrong or bad or unfair or unjust. And those are all distinctions. Those are all different things. To the extent hacking implies something that's illegal, as opposed to the colloquial use that you know something is a life hack. Uh, I don't know if there's a successful challenge to the recall process. Uh, it seems to me that people in a democracy can decide to do any number of dumb things. Uh, that in the name of democracy undermine democracy and under, undermine you know majority rule, even allowing for the fact that you have to protect minority rights. From all the things that I'm reading and the smart people who have opinions on these things with respect to the California recall, I think it's, it seems amazingly stupid that we're in a position where a small number of people can elect somebody through a process that, that seems not to be majoritarian and not to be in the best interests of democracy, even though there's going to be a vote, there's going to be a plebiscite on it. But I, I, I don't, I don't have enough expertise to, to opine more on that. But I think it's a good question, and I plan to pay more attention. And I would be paying a lot more attention if I lived in California, obviously. We are going to leave it there. 
Preet Bharara, you're a great American. Thank it's you great all. To see you. The last time I saw you, we were in New York and we were allowed to have fun again. And let's, now let's do it. The fun is no longer allowed again. It's uh, it's terrible. But let's uh, let's get together again soon. Let's do it in um, Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, Singapore, Singapore, um, Singapore. We're never allowed to have fun. But it is one of the world's great food <laughs> cities, um, as long as you don't spit any of the food on the sidewalk or gum. Um, yeah. Right. Um, That's like a defining news story of my childhood, by the way. The caning. Incident. The caning of the kid who spray painted yeah. the car. Or like gray paint. Yeah, the graffiti thing. Yeah. yeah, somebody needs to hunt that kid down and find out whatever happened to him. We should bring him on in lieu of fun. Um, yeah. Hey, can, uh, can I make one, one recommendation? Yeah. We didn't talk about it and I have not researched, but I would love to hear the smart people uh, in your show, maybe you've already done this, address the legal merits of the kid who is suing on the on grounds of child pornography. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nirvana. Oh, Nirvana. Yes. Yeah. So There's I want to know the answer to that question. So with There's that, a, I leave you. Well, we should have Jen Rothman on to talk about that. Jen Rothman is a professor, and she, her specialty is right of publicity stuff and IP rights oh, at, like, right. um, she's at Penn. Right, you know yeah, Jen. You did, uh, yeah, her, her, well, her, her, her most recent book was on the right of publicity, right? Yes, her Let's, book was on the right of publicity, and she yeah. just wrote a Yale Law Journal article with Robert Post about oh, like the so, First Amendment and the right of publicity. So published. she should come on and talk about that. That would be great. But that's well, a good idea, Preet. Like, I've been thinking about it a lot. She wrote a tweet about it. Yeah. I can send it to you. Or you can have more lawyers on to talk about COVID. That's also good. Yeah, that, yeah. no, that's... That doesn't get old at all. You know, por que no los dos. Um, uh, that will be, we will make that happen. But first, we have to finish our week of uh, 500th episode celebrations. We will be back tomorrow with Peter Strzok uh, uh, in 500, episode 500, number three. And uh, until then, Genevieve. We don't have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have a myriad of ways in which we can recognize the humanity in each other and come together on our commonalities. Wow. Well said. Yeah. No doubt Jeez. true. We will Thanks see you tomorrow.